This is a, a kind of contemporary take on that classic locked room thriller. It's, it's kind of murder on the Orient Express meets Con Air. We're all armchair detectives, aren't we? We we watch Line of Duty, we watch all the Scandi dramas. We you know we know we know how to solve crimes, and so I've got all these readers who are brilliant at solving crimes, and I can't pull the wool over their eyes without working really really hard. You know I'm playing a, a real game of cat and mouse with the reader, but one of the ways we can do it as thriller writers and crime writers is to create motives for a lot of people. I have two irrational fears. One of them is ending up in prison. And I don't know why I'm I'm terrified of that because I have no intention of breaking the law, but I I'm often very very concerned about being in prison. And the other one is a tax inspection. And again, it's irrational because I don't do anything wrong. I'm really really kind of good. Hello, welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I am thankfully not, but I am Natalie Jameson. <laughs> <laughs> you can be as unkind as you want, but only one of us can walk at the moment. Oh, yeah, it doesn't look my hip. Um, but hopefully by the time you're listening to this, not that you'll be able to see or care, it'll be all sorted, so it's fine. <laughs> so that's the beauty of podcasts, isn't it? <laughs> it is. You just say sat down to do them. <laughs> that's good because yeah I generally can't really move much at the moment but that's fine um yes uh, I am Natalie Jameson that's Phil Williams and thank you again for joining us on bestsellers and uh it's one of your favorites this week Phil I love Claire McIntosh I loved her from the very first book that I did a for which I think was now which one was the first it was one of the first two that I did Claire for um years and years ago and you know what there was an issue on the radio where a big story broke and we were due to do her and so we couldn't do her and then the next time so you're basically saying you dropped her you dropped the entire interview with her no i'm saying that a big breaking story got in the way of the interview (laughs) and she understood very gracefully how news works yes and um then the next time she came up to the actual studio to do Mm. it in sulfur keys and she'd brought her entire family up to this to the hotel just to do the interview and I was like oh you didn't have to do that and it was really yeah and then you go there's another breaking news story and I'm really sorry we can't do this (laughs) (laughs) no 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 and Claire's writing's fantastic and in fact my my mother-in-law uh was up recently and said she wanted a book to read and so I gave her Claire's last book and she devoured it she's like where can I get more Claire McIntosh where can I get them from she absolutely loved it so yeah did you say this is how bookshops work (laughs) <laughs> well yeah I, I yes i mean that's a really good point you know that you make there because i think implicit in where do i get more was can you get me mm-hmm, more mm-hmm. more books and the answer was yes i think i did send that i think i sorted you know not free ones yeah. by the way because i don't want claire's pockets empty so yeah i think i sent my mother-in-law another claire mackintosh book to delve into but yeah they're really 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 good great writer former copper with thames valley police and now i would say one of the world's top crime writers yeah so it's claire mackintosh then telling us all about her new thriller hostage and to introduce it properly is the honorable are you honorable are you it's phil williams (laughs) 
Our guest today on Bestsellers is a well-established top 10 writer whose latest book sees a family's daughter put in danger when hijackers seize control of the first ever non-stop London to Sydney flight. It's a pure thriller, a slight departure from her more psychological stories that you'll have read, like Let Me Lie, I See You and I Let You Go. And we're delighted that former copper turned bestseller Claire McIntosh joins us now. How are you doing? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure for us. We're both huge fans of yours, as you know already. I don't want to swell that head any bigger. Um, tell us what it's like being caught up in the maelstrom of this book now, of, of Hostage, because um, obviously you'll be doing loads of interviews. Um, the quotes have come in thick and fast from all of your peers. Um, as we, at time of recording, we know that you're going to be number three in the chart, possibly by the time this goes out, hopefully high, higher, higher by love. And... Um, <laughs> And so how does it does it feel like it's kind of more crazy than previous books? Yeah, do you know, it, it always feels crazy. You know, it, it, it always feels like such a, a weird thing to be going through, not least because whenever a new book comes out, I'm always already almost finishing the one after it. And so I'm immersed in a completely different world. And actually doing all the publicity stuff for Hostage means pulling myself out of the new world and into a world that I created two years ago. And so that in itself is mad. And yes, there has been, there's been quite a lot of buzz about hostage and quite a lot of uh, stuff in the press and interviews and all that has been absolutely amazing. We get that a lot in that, don't we, from the writers that come on where you're in a promotional cycle, but obviously you're actually in your world, you're writing cycles one book ahead. Well, at, at least one. And actually right now, I, so this morning I've been writing, I've been finishing the synopsis for 2023's thriller right. um, and doing the edits for 2022's uh, crime novel. So how it, can you yeah. do that simultaneously? I have to be at different stages. So I was listening to a really, um, a really good interview with an author whose name completely escapes me, which is really annoying. Um, and she has two desks and two computers so that she can work on two different projects, uh, which is a bit nuts. Yeah. Um, so I guess I could do that. For me, it's got to be different stages. So I can do the first draft of one book and I can do copy edits on another, or I can be planning one book and promoting another. What I couldn't do is write two first drafts because mm. they involve the same part of my brain and I can't yeah, use that's it interesting. more than one thing. What did Anthony Horowitz tell us, Nat? Do you remember? Did Anthony say he was doing three projects in a day, but he would do them at different times of the day? So one in the morning, one early afternoon, one later. Yeah, I can't quite remember. I remember Erin Kelly as well saying a similar thing in that it depends what stage you're at on each book. So yeah, exactly what you're saying, Claire. If you're kind of in that first draft creating a world, you can't have two of them on the go. But I think Anthony Horowitz might do, but then he kind of is so prolific. He gets so many books out, it seems. But um, it's kind of, I think it's really encouraging actually to hear you say that because as somebody, so I'm writing my second book right now, but I would beat myself up saying, why can't I, why aren't I progressing further on this thing? And until I'd kind of heard other people talking about it, I didn't quite gauge and without sounding really wanky, there's a lot to hold in your head trying to like have an entire world and book that you're sort of developing and focus on other stuff. It's yeah, it, it was properly frazzling my brain. It, yeah, it is. It's it's a huge amount to have in your head. And of course, you've also got to find a little bit of space in your head for, you know, like real life and uh, 
families and what you're going to have for dinner and all the kind of mundane stuff. And oh, my God, it's Wednesday. The bins have got to go out. You know, you've got to do all that. Uh, so, I, you know, I think it's, it's a lot to ask of your poor little head. <laughs> yeah, I ask quite a lot of my poor little head quite a lot, actually. But, um, I should also say for clarity that I finished hostage about an hour ago. So I'm still in that quite hyper <gasps> and want to ask you loads of questions that I, I won't be able to because it will spoil it. But maybe after we finish recording. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it made me think, as with any book, but particularly with thrillers and psychological thrillers that you write as well there are so many threads that you could pull on to take a book in different directions and I wonder in the first draft and subsequent draft stages are you always trying out different threads and how far do you go on those before you go no actually that one's not going to do I'm going to rein that back and I'm going to go off in a different direction yeah a little bit so most of that thinking is done before I start the book um, so with Hostage in particular, I could have it, it's a story that could have been written in lots of different ways. And mm. because the original idea for it came from a conversation with a, a pilot friend, so a female pilot friend who was talking about the fact that you're not allowed to open the flight deck door, that whatever's happening on the other side of it, if a member of staff is, is being attacked, you know, you cannot open that door. And she said, even if my, my children were on the flight and one of my children was, was being attacked, I cannot open that flight deck door. And initially I thought, oh, is that is that my story is you know is she my my um my heroine that the pilot mm -hmm. and is her family on the flight and so I played around with that for for a while and actually it was the limitations of that that stopped me from writing it that way because of course if I do it that way a her entire family is on the plane and that gives me one place to write mm -hmm. that story whereas what I've chosen to do in hostage is two very different scenes two different locked rooms but also if my heroine is the pilot they are stuck in a flight deck um, whereas if I change the story around and I have my flight attendant as the the lead role and we follow uh, Mina then she's interacting with all these different passengers and suddenly the level of intrigue and suspicion and, and threat is much more interesting so all that was done before I started planning the book and I'll do that with lots of, of my books, work out what's the best point of view to tell this story in. And then it's more about the, the structure, but you're absolutely right that, that things change. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that we have in, in Hostage is that we meet a dozen or so passengers and we have their point of view that they're, they're like little passenger vignettes that give us their seat number and the reason why they're on the plane. And I didn't have those in the first iteration the first draft and so I was trying to tell that story just through Mina's point of view and it got very confusing and very muddly and then I tried it another way by having just our antagonist our baddie telling the story and weaving in the uh, the others and, and that didn't work either and so it was quite a while before I worked out that I could have uh, the, the passenger stories and I was wary of doing it because it's a lot of characters to introduce mm -hmm. um, and so presenting it the way I have I think makes it more straightforward to follow from the reader's point of view yeah so just on that um, well a couple of things from me on that firstly each one has a different seat number so that that was very useful for me that allowed me to go oh yeah okay. oh hang on we've done that we've met this person before kind of thing when I'm piecing it together and also as I'm reading uh, and get to those bits 
I started to think, oh, murder on the Orient Express here. And then you you reference that in your acknowledgements at the end of the book, don't you? I do. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I love, I love Agatha Christie. Uh, This is a a kind of contemporary take on that classic locked room thriller. It's, it's kind of murder on the Orient Express meets Con Air. Um, And there (laughs) I've read so many um, brilliant locked room or, or what I call closed community thrillers. Lucy Foley does it brilliantly. Ruth Ware does it really, really well where you, have got your defined cast of characters. And that's really challenging for a writer because you've only got what you've got from the outset. I, I can't have halfway through this novel, a man you know, twirling his moustache, walking onto the, uh, onto the set and, uh, and solving mysteries or, or becoming a, a long lost twin baddie because we're all on the same plane. We can't get off, we can't get on. Um, and so that is, I think, quite exciting for a reader because they know that they're already they've already met the baddie. They don't know who yeah, it is yet, yes, but they know right. it's someone on that plane. Yeah, because I think we're probably as readers and viewers of so many crime films and TV shows and stuff now, everybody is under suspicion. So I think whereas before, maybe you could sort of pick up a book and, and be genuinely not see a new character coming in or you sort of feel like you're going down one particular road I think often we do pick up a book now and you're like they're all under suspicion so as a reader you're kind of really trying to to work it out and I can only imagine as a writer how challenging that is how you know how much to give away and how much to pull back and and how to get that balance right because it's such a delicate art I think. Oh, it really is. And man, it just gets harder and harder because <laughs> readers get better and better. Uh, you know, we're all armchair detectives, aren't we? We we watch Line of Duty. We watch all the Scandi dramas. We, we, you know, we know. We know how to solve crimes. And so I've got all these readers who are brilliant at solving crimes. And I can't pull the wool over their eyes without working really, really hard. You know, I'm playing a a real game of cat and mouse with the reader. And that's fine. That's my job. And I love it. And it, you know, feels very much like being a police officer still, um, except that the readers are are good guys, I think, mostly and not are not baddies. Um, But one of the ways we can do it as as thriller writers and crime writers is to create motives for a lot of people. Um, because then the question isn't so much, or can I spot the bad guy, but which of all these possible mm. bad guys could it be? And, and given that that's your job to do that for us, right? When you're watching those programs that you just referenced, are you really good? Are you better than us at guessing? I I don't know about that. I think I think in novels I am. I I'm um, I don't watch a huge amount of TV, and I'm really really easily distracted and so I will often watch while I'm cooking or reading something or doing something or signing books or something you know so I've only got half my attention on it whereas when I'm reading I'm absolutely 100% immersed and I don't miss detail and I often find that this sounds very odd but I am more likely to work out twists and reveals when they're written by a very, very good writer than I am a not so good writer. And, you know, that feels very odd, but it's because a very good writer won't waste anything. So if there Uh, is a a random mention of a, um, I don't know, you know, a kipper in chapter Mm. three, Mm. there's a reason for that kipper. Like this is going to come back later on. Whereas a less 
skilled writer will throw everything in um, and you know it could be a red herring or a kipper in fact um, <laughs> or or it could be relevant um, so yeah it's you know it's a fun a fun game to play yeah I definitely do that when watching films and things in a similar way it's like uh yeah they've like why did why is there that thing on the table that's going to be relevant you kind of once you're sort of clued into that a little bit it's, it, but it is really fun I think and it for me it just enhances the, the pleasure of it it's fun it provided that you're not sat next to the person that keeps putting the theory forward. You know, I remember <laughs> yeah, watching can, Along Came a Spider came out and my mate's wife in the first minute, I mean, as if you've seen that film, but all you see in the opening minute is a car pull up in a domestic street. It's throwing it down with rain. A male figure gets out of the car and enters a house. And she's going, who's that? Who's in that car? Who is it? Which house is he going to? Who lives in that house? Where's the spider? Why is it called Along Came a Spider? Uh, can we have all that at the end? <laughs> <laughs> Should we get you to um, read a bit of your brilliant book to us so that people listening to this uh, haven't yet experienced it can get a flavour of it? Now, obviously, with Claire's work, if you've read any of Claire's work, you'll know that there are twists and there are turns and sometimes there are puzzles to solve. So there's no spoilers in any of this chat today because we don't want to do that. We want you to experience it as we did, cold, and then you can work it out for yourself. And actually, all I'll say is there's more than one puzzle to solve. You don't mind me saying that, do you? No, that's that's fine. There are lots of puzzles to solve. So I'm going I'm going to read the prologue, which is Sophia's voice. Um, and Sophia is my favourite character. She's five years old. She is the daughter of Mina and Adam, who are our central characters. And uh, this is her um, right at the start of the book. Don't run, you'll fall. Past the park, up the hill. Wait for the green man. Not yet, not yet. Now cat in the window like a statue just the tiniest tip of his tail moving twitch 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 another road to cross no green man and no lollipop lady she should be here look both ways not yet not yet now don't run you'll fall post box then lamp post then bus stop then bench big school not my school not yet bookshop then empty shop then the state agent where they sell houses now the butcher's shop, birds hanging from their necks in the window, my eyes squeezed shut so I don't have to see theirs staring back. Dead. All dead. Such a good opener. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, um, you know, it's really interesting. I always love it when the authors read for us because I think it brings something to it from your own voice. And there's a distinct rhythm to that, Claire. Was that intentional? Yeah when you wrote that I, I have a bit of a thing about rhythm um ah. so I always read my books alive uh, aloud um I always read them alive that's and I find that it's useful firstly to catch repetition and it's extraordinary how how you fall back on these sort of literary ticks and and you use the, the same words but also to make sure it it uh, it has the right rhythm and sometimes a sentence is just too long or too short or it's too similar to the one before and I think you know a, a novel should be carrying you forward it's like the wheels of a train it should be reaching you you know getting you towards a point this this forward momentum all the time and rhythm and the poetry of words is a really good way of pushing the reader through a book yeah I, I love i I hear a lot of authors say about reading their books aloud and I haven't done that yet with the writing that I've done and I feel I should, but 
stupidly in my head I'm like but it takes so long to like read the whole book out it does take a really really long time um and I it takes longer as well when you're doing it for editing purposes mm. than when you're doing it you know just so so I read I read the audiobook of um a, a non-fiction book that I wrote and it only took maybe I think I was in the studio for two and a half days um but I wanted to change so much as I was reading. And of course you can't because it's, that's it, it's published now. You know, the words have to stay as, as they are. But if I'm reading a book to edit, I've got to allow at least a week to, to go through it because I've got to really, really hear it. You know what would be pretty cool though? You know, what, I'm going to make this suggestion to you now. Take it or leave it. But next time you do an audio book like that and you want to make changes, just call it Claire McIntosh Hostage Director's Cut. <laughs> and then people feel like they're getting like a genuinely exclusive different experience you know what I mean? they could you'll have your hardcore fans that will want to read the book and then listen to the audiobook to work out what you've changed love it i will add that to my book of big ideas <laughs> on that has that ever does that ever happen i generally don't know i'm sure it probably must have done but you know like obviously how in movies you do get director's cuts and things and no, do authors not, ever not, do no not to my knowledge but what, what i'm getting now is um Especially nonfiction, like Claire mentioned, is so the White House. Yeah, mm. the White House and Mortimer goes fishing book. They took you fishing on the audiobook, and it was not in the book, and it was just a real audio adventure. Mm. Um, I can't. Um, the next story will have to go unnamed because I'm, I'm privileged to information that I shouldn't be sharing. But there's an author who's doing a book soon, who has got some issues with reading aloud, and so they've been given full license to actually change it, and they will be kind of almost riffing as they do the book amazing that would be great i yeah i've not come across sort of director's cut audio but a lot of authors myself included will use deleted scenes or extra um you know stuff that just didn't make the book as exclusive material so for me i use that in my in my book group so you know my Mm. subscribers will will get stuff that just for whatever reason didn't quite make the final cut we should talk about your book club, shouldn't we? Um, why just you just before it? we move on to that, though, can I just ask the oh. other thing that in terms of those extra scenes that sometimes gives me palpitations is, you know, often now if you buy a book um, and then they'll have the first one or two chapters of the author's next of book next at book. the end of the book that you're reading. <laughs> when that happens, I can't help but thinking now that I've done a bit of writing myself, but like, how do you know at that point that like you might not really want to change you know particularly the opening of the next book like that it feels like a really early time to get locked in it's quite bold isn't it and I like I I quite often don't have a title for my book (laughs) until a few months before it um what so I tend to have those chapters in the paperback so right now so Mm -hmm. the hardback of hostage has just come out we certainly couldn't have the opening chapters of next year's book because there's so much up in the air about them. But by the time the paperback comes out, which will be maybe early next spring, the uh, I'll have done the next next year's book. It'll all be finished. It'll be you know ready to go Got for the chapters. So I think that's pretty safe. But on that note, I um, I'm torn as a reader. I'm torn about that extra material at the end of a book because. Uh, so I love reading it and I like to know what's coming up next and it will make me pre-order but you know that thing where you you're going somewhere and you look at how many pages you've got left in a book and you're like oh that's fine I'll take that on my train because that that'll be you know like half an hour and then you realize that there's only one chapter left in the book and the rest of it is you know trailers and interviews and acknowledgements and you haven't got another book to read 
Yeah, I also find it's that thing. I am that person who stays in the cinema and at home on my sofa until the very end of the credits because I quite like that, as well as acknowledging all the people that worked on it. I quite I like that time to just sit with everything I've just seen or read. And so sometimes I find if there are those extra chapters at the end of a book that I'm, I'm too greedy. So I want to read them straight away, but actually I kind of want to just stop and and just absorb the ending of the book before dismissing that and going straight into something new. Yes, yes. I think perhaps it works particularly well when an author writes a series mm. because you get, you know, you, you know the characters in the world already and so you're just carrying on in a way. Uh, but I think I would rather see maybe an author interview or something yeah. about what they're writing next so that it gives me a bit of a flavour without, as you say, pulling me out of one world and mm. into another. Lee Child would always, and I was always so impressed with this, every time he came on a show I was doing to talk about his current book that was out, he would always give me the first line of the next book. And I would always double check it. And in a year's time when he came around, it was still the first line of the book. That's thought, very wow. cool. And of course, he famously never changes anything, does he? You know, he, he just starts writing. Yeah from that first line and then never and goes, no. ever changes and he was saying so I, I did an event a couple of weeks ago uh, with a bookshop in Arizona and they arranged as a surprise for Lee Child to drop in and oh, say nice wow. things about my book oh, it was wow. very cool but I was not remotely suave and sophisticated and so I <laughs> burst into tears did you? and then well, I, I was just a bit overwhelmed um, and then couldn't really speak for a bit so you know that oh. went well but so it, <laughs> We were talking about this this whole process of, of editing because I'm so far away from that working practice of let's just see where the story goes and then not change anything. And he said, you know, so, sometimes the editor will say, oh, I think this might be better if it happens here rather than there. And uh, and Lee said, and I'll and I'll just say, well, yeah, you're probably right, but it but it didn't. It, it happened there. So, you know, <laughs> that's that's what we've got. <laughs> and I think like. I mean, maybe you can do that when you're Lee when Child. When you're Lee Child, yeah, that's what I, I was thinking. I genuinely think that if I said that to my editor, yeah, you're probably right, but, you know, that's just how, how it came out. My editor would have some things to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I'm so sorry for you were asking about book. Oh, no, it's only because you mentioned your book club, Claire, and I just think it's a really good thing that you've got going on and we should talk about it and explain what, what it is you do. I love my book club. Um, my book club started by accident because I don't like sending newsletters and authors are sort of expected by publishers to have newsletters and readers do like hearing from authors. But I found it really awkward to be writing this, this letter that was all about me. And then I thought more about the sorts of newsletters that I like reading and the ones I unsubscribe from and the ones I subscribe to and switched it all around. And so I, instead of sending a newsletter all about me, I created a book club that would choose. So I, I choose a book every month to read, um, almost always a paperback. I've broken my own rules and chosen my own book this month, which is incredibly really? egotistical. Which one have you gone for? Uh, funnily enough, I've gone for hostage. Um, <laughs> but for 11 months of the year, it's not remotely about me. Uh, and we read all sorts. <laughs> we read um, so memoir. So uh, I've just remembered that the name of the author who has two computers oh, for yeah. two different projects. So Maggie O'Farrell. So we read <laughs> I Am, I Am, I Am, 
by Maggie O'Farrell. We read Lies, Lies, Lies by um, Adele Parks. We don't only read books that have repetition of words. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I choose, I choose a paperback. It goes out to all the members. I've got about 13,000 um, members on the list and supported by a, a great Facebook group with about 8,000 in. And after everyone's read the book, a month later, we have 10 days worth of questions and a Q&A with the author and all sorts of things. And I absolutely love it. It's really oh, cool. I was just thinking the luxury of reading a book in a month. I, I know, I, but... I did yours in five days. Well, that's that's very impressive. Um, and you didn't finish it just an hour before our, our, our chat, <laughs> did you? No, I mean, I would finished I mean, this. that's close to the wire, isn't it? <laughs> I'm like, once a journalist, on, always a journalist. I'm good with deadlines and um, on journalism actually it made me smile because I'm sure people listen to this know that Phil is also on the radio and you two was Yo, what? Them. <laughs> hey let him on what oh can I just tell you as my two-year-old said to me last night 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 daddy enjoy your time on the radiator Aww. oh that's really sweet <laughs> but you two were chatting last night and uh, uh Claire you mentioned talking about your um police history uh, work-wise and saying that you started coming to Oxford to Thames Valley Police in sort of like 99, 2000 and were caught up in animal rights demonstrations. Well, coincidentally, I was a uh, youthful reporter at Fox FM in Oxford. I thought you were going to say you were one of the protesters. No, what? so I was, really? I was covering those protests and didn't That's know what I was amazing. doing. amazing. I, I used to love Fox FM. I used <laughs> to absolutely love it. That's yeah. amazing. And I did interviews as a police officer with Fox FM. I probably um, interviewed you at those protests because, you know, there very cool. was quite a small pool of people that you'd... But they were, they were quite terrifying sometimes. And it was it was a real hotbed at that particular time um, with everything that was going on. And I do remember not particularly having had the training and getting caught in a bottleneck and not quite knowing... Well, look, mate, you, you and me both, OK? <laughs> Um, but what I loved about what, what I find really interesting about that sort of situation is you've got this this whole gamut of types of protesters. You've got people who are very, very law abiding, but feel passionately about whatever they're protesting about. So, you know, in hostage, it would be climate change and um, back in Oxford, it would be animal rights. And then you've got the other end of of the spectrum where you've got people who are absolutely determined to break laws in order to make their their point mm -hmm. to get their, their point across and you've also got the people who turn up to protests um we used to call them revolving door protesters you know they, they would just be at whatever demonstration you see the same people it could be fathers for justice it could be climate change like it, you could it could be any protest you'd see the same people and they don't care about the cause at all they just want to fight um and so that makes it really challenging from a policing point of view, because everyone's got different motivations and different aims. But from a writer's point of view, it gives you lots and lots of different stories. Yeah. And like to bring it back to hostage as well, that's what I really enjoyed and reminded me of that time in Oxford as well, because you, you know, you, you were saying a moment ago that the kind of key to sort of not fooling the reader, but kind of presenting lots of options to the reader is giving everybody a motivation and when you're reading it and likewise when I was covering those protests you can kind of see everybody's point of view and you're trying your best to work out what is the right thing to do and you know from my as a journalist how to be unbiased about it and not put your own personal um, 
feelings into something and that does absolutely then blend into how I read books now and trying to get into the head of different people and seeing well maybe if you look at it like that it's, it's fascinating and and you do it so well really in this book it's great thank you you're welcome <laughs> I wanted to talk briefly about I let you go which was my first book of yours I read and I didn't want to read it because it involved uh, a child something happening to a child and I'd recently become a parent and I was like I don't think I can just any I was in that kind of zone where you're everything feels quite sort of raw and you can't quite cope with anything bad happening to um, a child in particular and I started reading it and I just remember going yeah I, I don't think I can do this and then a couple of pages like but I, I just need to read the next page and I was like and then I need to read the next page and it was such a ride to go through the story and it absolutely pulled me through and we were on holiday at the time and my husband's like what are you reading I was like I literally can't put it down it's so and I was I was telling him the premise he was like yeah I don't think I want to read that one either <laughs> I was like what it, yeah do you know it was a really it was a really tough one to talk about because well partly because there's a big twist in it that um that still people are really good about not spoiling which I love so you know that there are spoilers online but you do have to kind of hunt for them um but also because I I wouldn't want to read a book about a hit and run that kills a five-year-old child Mm -hmm. um but that's not really what the book is about Mm -hmm. really you know the, the the book is about moving past trauma and reinventing yourself and finding a you know a new life and um uh, it's about relationships and control and all sorts of, of other things but on the face of it uh, yeah it, it's quite a tough sell particularly to people with young kids um so well done for for persevering <laughs> um and ultimately enjoying it <laughs> but i think that with a lot of kind of thrillers is that actually what I find I enjoy about them is exactly what you're saying. It's the relationships, it's the drama, it's the stories of the people in it. And it was interesting at the start, you were saying you're writing a synopsis at the moment. Is it really hard sometimes? I know a lot of people hate writing synopses anyway, but to try and distill it down to that one line that you know will be the the easy, and you hope the good marketing sell, but actually that's not really what the book's about. Yeah, sometimes. So so Let Me Lie was a good example of that because that came from a real life case that that provided me with a twist. But I couldn't mention the real life case because everyone knew it and everyone knew how it you know panned out and therefore what the twist would be. So suddenly the USP for that book became impossible to talk about. So that's always difficult. Whereas when it's a more of a situational hook, like hostage you know right from the start Mm. there we go I've got a locked room thriller takes place on a 20-hour flight boom you know you you don't really need to know any more about it to make a decision about whether you want to read it and it already feels tense and the synopsis that I'm writing at the moment is very similar so that there are twists in it but I don't need to talk about the twists I can tell you that the thriller I'm working on is about a woman who uh, uh, several years ago married a man on death row and now he's escaped and so that's, you know, the, the, the kind of the starting point for both the synopsis and the novel. And it's the only line I, I'm going to need, really, for the next couple of years as I write it and tell people <laughs> what, what it's about. So it kind of depends on, on where the genesis of the story came from as to whether it's an easy book to, to talk about or not. 
that's good. It's a handy thing to come up with. It, I mean, obviously, I'm just thinking now in my mind, death row, that means United States. And so uh, is the travel situation restricted? Would you ideally have gone out and done some actual physical research or is it all on Google now? I mean, for this book, so fortunately, this isn't next year's book. This is 2023's book. So I've got a bit more time and I'm hopeful that in the next 12 months, I'll make it to death row, which is where I really want to be. In the meantime, I'm interviewing people who have had relationships with people on death row. I'm talking directly to people on death row. I'm listening to an incredible podcast called Ear Hustle, uh, which is uh, produced and presented by um, long-term inmates. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot out there. Um, but the tra- yeah, the travel thing is, it, it is interesting because I tend to travel for research for after the end, uh, I went to, out to Chicago and walked through the streets that my characters walked and found the exact house that, that they live in. Um, and it's a bit restrictive, um, but the internet is, you know, an amazing thing. And uh, Twitter enables you to find all manner of sources for, for research. So it's not too bad. And what, from a writer's perspective, what does walking the streets allow you to do that literally just sitting where you are now and making up a house couldn't do? So I think the house thing I could have done, what I actually did with After the End is I timed my research trip for my second draft. So I've learned that I change a lot between my first and second drafts. And if I do a research trip or, or do any, you know, do too much research before I finish that first draft, a lot of it is wasted. So I actually do the minimal research possible, write the draft and then go and A, fact check and B, add authenticity. So for after the end, it was about the sounds that the... Um, the way the they have one of these overground um uh like a tube train but you know it's mm, up mm. it's above your head and yeah, and it yeah, yeah. makes a rattle like a, does, a really yeah. really they call loud it the rattler don't they they do yeah and so you know i wanted to i had a, a particular scene where a couple is having a, a conversation an argument under under a train as it goes past and i wanted to stand there and and kind of feel that and it definitely added a, a real layer of authenticity um to to those you know about half the book is is set in chicago um so i i did that and i also employed um uh, a uh, an interpreter um so i i worked with a woman who a british woman who has lived in chicago for a long time and and is married to a chicago and and she uh, did a language edit on on the american sections ah. of after the end because I know as a British reader that if I read something that's supposedly set in the UK, written by an American or by anyone else, that there are often things that really don't, that they just really jar, they don't feel authentic. And I wanted to avoid that. So she was great. And she picked up on, um, you know, there are just, there are little things like we we say a couple of weeks and mm. Americans might say a couple weeks. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'd picked up on quite a few, but she was brilliant at, at making it really, really authentically American. What a job! I didn't like even. Know it's that not her. It's not her actual job. I don't. I, I don't <laughs> think it is a job. She is just somebody I know on Twitter, and I think I'd actually approached her to ask about 
um, uh, house prices, where, where a particular, you know, here's my character, this is their rough income, this is what they do, what area of Chicago might they be likely to live in? And that had led to lots of other conversations. And then it led to me saying, look, you know, how much to read my manuscript and uh, edit bits. Um, wow, that's, so, quite, um, that's yeah. quite a trustworthy position you put her in, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I did, yeah. I mean, she could have really stitched me up. <laughs> yeah. I could have read the manuscript and then gone on Twitter and gone, I've just read this amazing manuscript. It's Claire McIntosh's next book. Well, I have to say, from my own personal experience as well, like Claire is brilliant on Twitter and you're so... I've um, messaged you a couple of times about writing questions and you're, you're always so gracious and generous at getting back to people. So I think people who do that with Claire are trustworthy anyway is mm, what I'm saying good point, um, good point. I'm I'm curious too when you know we've talked a couple of times about going to do research trips and going to the <laughs> states and doing that at what point in your own head are you able to justify those as a work thing that you have mm. to do and not just say I'm going on a holiday that I'm paying for to America and I'm genuinely I'm going to do loads of writing I am because <laughs> I think sometimes people can hear those things going yeah I did this like trip and you're like really did you though <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm really strict about it. I, um, I'm terrified of a uh, tax inspection. I have this, this, you know how people have really, really irrational fears. And one of my fears, I have two irrational fears. One of them is ending up in prison. Um, and I don't know why I'm, I'm terrified of that because I have no intention of breaking the law, but I, I'm often very, very concerned about being in prison. And the other one is a tax inspection. And again, it's irrational because I don't do anything wrong. I'm really, really kind of good when it comes to expenses. I, you know, I, I, I don't take the piss. I only do what I'm allowed to do. And so I follow that really with a research trip. I, I would never, I know of authors who put family holidays through, um, through the books and then set their next book in you know Spain because why not it could be set anywhere and I I'm very against that um not because I don't think you know I think it's very ballsy of them I just personally would be terrified at having to justify it to HMRC um so for me it's not enough to just say I'm going to write you know I can write anywhere I don't have to go somewhere to to write about it um it's about the uh the facts that I need to ascertain, the people I need to speak to, the um, the mood, the authenticity, and I've got to be able to draw a direct link to my to, to the book I'm working on. So I couldn't, you know, I'd love to just go off to Vietnam and you know spend yeah. three weeks wandering around and seeing where inspiration strikes. And it might, you know, I might get a great idea for a novel, but I might not. And actually, that's you know that that's not how I I do my my thing so with my neck so hostage involved no trips at all apart from um down to London to fly uh, a simulator a, a Boeing 777 which I did with with my son who was genuinely there as my research assistant um taking notes taking photographs he got to fly the plane and was amazing, like all kids who play PlayStation mm. are. Mm. Uh, and then I crashed so spectacularly <laughs> that I could have written a, a novel just about that um, appalling <laughs> landing. But it was great because I got to land it at Sydney in the exact weather conditions that, you know, the, oh, wow. the plane would arrive. So those sorts of things, you know, are, are justifiable research. Um, but my next book is set in 
in Wales in the area I live in and so uh, I haven't had to go anywhere which has been fortunate because we haven't been allowed. And just on those things as well how receptive are people when you write to them and some of this may come from your police background to to say can I talk to you whether it's on death row because I'm writing a book or can I come and try out your flight simulator because I'm doing research for a book how again to me that sounds really ballsy and I'm probably one of my irrational fears is just that everyone will say no (laughs) I'll be yeah it it is it's quite nerve-wracking I think particularly when you are early in your career if you're writing a book that hasn't yet been published that's Mm. it it does feel like quite a ballsy thing to do but my experience of asking lots and lots of people from forensic pathologists to perfumiers um, is that people like seeing their professions accurately represented in books tv and film and they are very happy to help you get the facts right you know there there are ways of approaching people that make a big big difference if you clearly outline what you want if you're very clear in your own mind what you want to find out and sometimes you can't be so I've had conversations with people where I've said I'm really interested in your job can I just talk to you about it because I I don't know yet but I think it might I think there might be something in it And that's one type of of research. And then the other one is you're a really, really busy, busy person. I've written a first draft. I've worked out now that these 20 things I really need to know the answer to. Can you know you're happy to, to answer them and finding out whether people are would rather have a chat on the phone or would they rather Skype or would they rather email? Mm. Um there are more options so, now, I guess. So. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I had so much help with with hostage, and I had one pilot in particular who helped me so much and gave me so many sort of behind the scenes details that he then asked not to be named <laughs> because <laughs> he was worried that actually he might have just overstepped the boundaries of what he was supposed to tell me. Um, but he was amazing and I Skyped with him for hours and hours and hours uh, and he read scenes and he did talk downs mm. with me and just, he was incredible. Oh, we should give him a shout out. What's his name? <laughs> just <laughs> testing, just testing. <laughs> oh, Claire, we could like literally talk for you for hours as well, but we should probably get some of your recommendations of other things that you think people would enjoy reading. Okay, I'm going to recommend two books and one is new and one is not so new and they are so, so different. So the first one I'm going to recommend is Three Hours by Rosamond Lupton, which has been out for a little while now. And I uh, I listened to this on audio and I only finished it a couple of days ago, still thinking about it. I had to pull over in the car to listen to the last 15 minutes because I was so choked up. And what's incredible about Three Hours is that it is a it's a crime novel. It's a, it's a thriller. It's about um, a very rural, quite exclusive, quite liberal school in the middle of woods. And it's winter and it's snowing and there's a lockdown situation in the school. Mm. And as the name suggests, the story takes three hours to unfold. Um, and there are lots of lives of children and teachers in jeopardy. So it is a thriller, but it has so much heart and so much emotion. Um, Rosamond Lupton has an incredible talent 
for creating characters that you care about so much. So that is a wholehearted recommendation. I've just looked that one up and that's three hours spelt three, not the digit. Rosamond Lupton, and that is also on this year's shortlist for the Thixton Crime Novel of the Year at Harrogate. She wrote Sister, right? Yes, Mm. she did. Um, Yes, just Sister, not Sister Right, just in case anyone's listening. (laughs) Like Sister Act, the sequel. Um, Yeah, and Sister is is really, really good. Um, She's very, very good at twists as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, yeah, I'm hoping to meet her actually in, in Harrogate at, at the Crime Writing Festival. Now, my other recommendation is I could not get further away with this, right? It's called Everything's Perfect and it's by Nicole Kennedy, a debut author. Um, and I met Nicole recently because she, so I'd read her book and we chatted a bit on Twitter and then she emailed me and she said, I'm, I'm, coming, I'm coming to stay with relatives in your part of the world do you fancy a drink? And I'll be completely honest with you. I thought, oh, I'm not sure about this. Like, you know, <laughs> what if we don't get on? Well, I, so we timed it. So it was a bit like a first date where, you know, I've, I'm like, well, it's place is closing in half an hour. So we'll just meet for a quick drink. Well, we ended up going on to like two other pubs and had so much in common. So she's a really great person. And um, Everything's Perfect is about the Instagram world. It's about that um, that facade that we present online. It's the world of uh, mummy bloggers, parent influencers, and the difference between reality and the, you know, the 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 hashtag ad mm. and the branded stuff. And it was very funny and quite thought provoking, and just a really, really good, entertaining debut. Cool. Hashtag living my best life, no filter. So blessed. <laughs> <laughs> We've been very blessed to get to talk to you on bestsellers, Claire. Thanks so much for your time. We've both really, really enjoyed it. Both huge fans of your work. And, um, you know, next year, come back. 2023, come back. Avoid death row. Yeah, and and if I get a book out finally, I'll be like, "Hi Claire, can we meet for a drink?" And then I'll be like, "Well, maybe we'll like do it." And I, I will say, yeah. I mean, it closed in half an hour, but let's do it. (laughs) I won't at all. We will have we'll have an absolute blast. It's always so great talking to you guys. Thank you so much. So originally, when we started this podcast, uh, the reason why I asked you to get involved is because I thought that you shared the same mission as me when it came to spreading the word about reading, about popular reading, about trying to ban elitism and snobbery in books. Which I do. And uh, uh, that's that's not in doubt, but I think your greater motive (laughs) was to try and be friends with all of these writers. That's what I'm sensing from these last couple of episodes. You just want to be mates with them. You just want to be able to go for a coffee with Claire McIntosh, Taylor Jenkins Reid. Dawny Walton, don't you? Well, let's just say that living through a pandemic has been very challenging for all of us. And yeah. even though I'm married with a lovely family, couple of kids, yeah. um, yeah. it can get lonely. <laughs> Isn't it nice to try and make new friends? It's really hard to make friends, right? Don't you think that that's the case as well at our age? We're both over 40, aren't we? Correct. And it's like, I mean, how many new friends have you made in the last five years? Yeah, a few. Um I think that the tricky thing is, isn't it, once you have kids as well, the assumption is that you will find a whole new world of friends 
because your children are friends with their kids. And sometimes that does happen. <laughs> don't laugh. But sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes the you don't kids... don't want to laugh, you, don't you? <laughs> sometimes the kids are really annoying. And so why would you like their parents? Uh, School WhatsApp group. No further questions, <laughs> my lord. To your witness. <laughs> yes, I left the school WhatsApp group. Um, yeah, see I, earlier episodes for details. <laughs> still think it's something to be proud of. Uh, no, I didn't. 100%. 100% <laughs> especially because the weekend just gone, I did my first kids' party. Ooh. Wasn't hosting, thankfully, just invited, right? But for whatever reason, some of them have been on weekdays now after school, so I've not been able to go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was invited. And both kids, not just the first kid, but but whose mate it was, but you know, even our youngest one was like, Daddy, you coming, you come to party. I was like, Yeah, all right, I'll come to party. Yeah. <sighs> you could have warned me. <laughs> it was like apocalypse now. <laughs> just stuff being thrown everywhere, water everywhere, toys being lashed through the air, missing people's heads by the narrowest of margins. Yeah. And then someone shouts food and the garden evacuates. And I'm like, right, okay, fine. And then there's one kid who's particularly boisterous. So you're thinking, well, why isn't his parent reining mm. him in? Right, what's going on there? And then his parent's first at the buffet. She's not messing about. <laughs> Straight in. Comes back with an absolute plateful. Well, you see, that's somebody I could be friends with right there. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe we just need to swap some. No, I'm, I sh I'm not being mean. There, are, I have lots of friends, and I haven't done this podcast just to make more friends. But if that happens to be a byproduct of yeah. us doing this and sharing our love of reading and fantastic writers, then no harm done, right? If you want to get in touch with us, it's bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. If you want to let us know about any of the authors you've loved, any of the books that you've gone on to buy as a result of listening to this podcast, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. It's at bestsellerspod on Twitter. And you can find me and Natalie on Twitter as well, really easily just by searching our names. You can. Um, <laughs> I might edit all this out or I might not. Let's see. Why? To, show, to, to save faith. Yeah, needy friend person. Hi. <laughs> well, we can get that. That's the range of merch. Why don't we get the merch done? Needy friend person. Needy friend person on the front. Bestsellers podcast on the back. <laughs> what do you reckon? Drop us an email if you want me to get those done. Probably need, I think, is it minimum of 50, I think, to make a merch run worth it? Yeah, needy friend person. Shouldn't it be something about reading or probably about books. <laughs> a better are, grammatical right? sentence than needy friend person? <laughs> what even is that? Is it a clause? Like, I don't know. <laughs> okay, on to next week then. Thanks for listening, honestly. Uh, and um, yeah, now, now I'm going to speak to you about next week. I can't do next week because I'm, I'm going to stop recording. Macintosh. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha